you go through these growth curves, you go through these pendulums, and, and you another big shift happens, another playbook evolves. So this is now the beginning of that new playbook where just growth top line or just profitability is not enough because everyone has seen that when you drive growth or you try to uh, build profitability without the purpose, without the mission, without the why, it is almost impossible in this digital and, and you know, disrupted world, consumers have tremendous choice. So you can't take it for granted. You, you have to earn and fight to earn their loyalty. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. My next guest balances technology, marketing, and humanity in a way that I think makes for some really unique points of view. Previously, he was a CMO at Freshly, the VP of Growth and Marketing at Spotify, and the global head of Omnichannel Experiences for Kimberly Clark. He's an active board member, investor, and Buddhist. Join me live today, Mayor Gupta. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for uh, having me over. So I'm just going to ju- jump right in with a, with a bit of a personal question, and uh, we'll see if that takes things off on the right foot or if we have to restart. <laughs> but it wasn't long ago that I was, I was totally new to marketing, and I was applying places, and I was looking for a new gig, and I had all these ideas of like what it would be like and what, what the new companies would be like and what my day-to-day would look like and everything like that. And I'd go through these kind of waves of emotion where one day I'd be like, okay, totally ready. I can take on any challenge. It's going to be easy. Like I know enough. I've read some books. I, I'll be fine. And then the next day was like, oh crap. I know nothing. I'm yeah. so unprepared. I don't even know what I'm looking for. So we're in totally different situations. But you currently, having just stepped away from your current role, do you feel like you have clarity about what your next step is going to be? Or are you taking this time to reassess what matters to you? Yes. First of all, I don't think you and I are in a much different space. Even when I was playing my my respective role, I felt that like that on many days. And I had no clue what I was doing. And you, on one day, you thought you knew, and then the next day, you did. And I and I think that that makes marketing a lot more fun now. It's it's constantly evolving. I feel every function is constantly evolving because that's the world we live in, and consumers' behavior. Are, are changing, new habits are being created so quickly and so much disruption, all in a good way. So that's a good thing that keeps all of us anxious, excited, challenged, and it's a never-ending journey to learn. But to answer your question, Stuart, about what's coming next, I would say I'm, I'm definitely taking a bit of a pause, I'd spend time with my family, you know, with my wife, uh, with my daughters, and any startup, you know, you you are consistently running at a thousand miles an hour, and I feel the last few years, uh, having worked at Spotify and not freshly, I think I, I'm I'm looking for that break. I'm not sure if I'm capable of doing that, so we'll see. But that's the idea. I think I have, uh, you know, on one hand, I'm having some fantastic conversations with with great people and just learning. So that's happening in parallel, but at the same time. 
I'm also not shying away from thinking, hey, is this time to bootstrap something that I believe in? And, you know, I've been a failed entrepreneur. I've had two startups very early on when, you know, whatever little wisdom I have now, I had none of that. Not even that, I should say, back then. So they both terribly failed. But there is the, the engineer inside me still feels that you can build whatever you want. So uh, who knows? If I have... If I have some courage to go along with the little that I know, it could very well be giving a shot to to something that I believe in. For sure. And you you touched on that you're you're actually an engineer by by kind of previous education. And I think that that kind of systems thinking really comes out when you're when you're talking about certain things. Like when you described this disruption, the constant change that's always going to happen in marketing as tools change, as platforms change, as interests and everything changes. But you didn't even say that. You broke it down to new behaviors. Tell me a little bit about how you think about behaviors and how you pay attention to, to how people react. Yeah, I think one, as my entry into the world of marketing was kind of, um, I don't know, good word, weird, um, not normal. I was an engineer. I, I did that. I was literally a technologist. I, I did my master in computer science. Everybody, every kid in India back then was doing it. That was the easiest path to getting a job. And and you know back then it was a big deal. You you know you had so many kids coming out of college. So that's how I started. And I just got lucky and fortunate in many ways that one of my mentors asked me to lead to be a product lead for you know an ad tech product we had bought. Uh, the company had bought in 2005 in Florida. And and that kind of evolved me from pure engineering to building products for marketing and advertising. And that was my starting point. And I would go back, I was traveling back and forth, and I would go back to the hotel and read Wikipedia. That was the only marketing for dummies, easiest way to explain what a pixel is, you know, what an advertiser was, what is the target, what is trafficking and tracking. I had I had no clue. So that's how I started, but but the genesis and the foundation for marketing for me uh, came from technology, came from data, came from product development for what marketers needed. And since then, it has I have taken these baby steps towards the center of marketing. And thankfully, and coincidentally, marketing since then in the last 16 years or so has evolved and is kind of at the intersection of marketing, technology, growth, storytelling. So... But that doesn't change who I am. I'm, I was trained as an engineer. Uh, I Every problem in life or at work that I look at, the brain just organically goes top down, bottom up. You know, you take a complex problem, you break it into pieces, and you stitch it all together again. Uh, if I'm taking my family or we're going together, place you, place we, my brain is always functioning like that. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing because marketing <laughs> – it should not be as structured, right? What works for marketing is that balance of serendipity with science. You know, it's in fact, it's no longer even art and science. I think it's art in science and science in art. It's inseparable. It's like blended. I don't think we are successfully doing it that way because we have indexed from 40 years of black box marketing where we had no clue. It was all soul and purpose, but no tangibility, no addressability. To now, in the last uh, you know thirteen years since two thousand seven, and iPhone and Facebook, where it's become totally addressable, too binary, all fear based, and no soul and no purpose. So hopefully, all the shifts that are happening brings us to the middle. But that's how I think about 
the world of marketing. It's it's a world of ands. You know, it's a world of converging brand with performance, purpose with growth, serendipity with measurability. It's not an either or. And if it's an either or, it's a short journey, whichever side you pick. I love that idea of it being and. It's the best of both sides. I've, I've seen you post on LinkedIn a few times talking about that we're at the end of that kind of growth at all costs era, which is funny that you're, you mentioned the, the technology as well, because the, the timelines almost line up completely. I think that we might have just figured it out. Like the money for VC investment came because now all of a sudden that money was traceable towards the growth of the company. I don't know enough about the mechanics of, of, of a venture-backed company, but, but now we're kind of getting away from that where profitability is now makes the most sense. It's, it's profitability and purpose. So if you talk to all the top VCs, I think they've seen it because, it, look, and this is very normal, right? You, you go through these growth curves, you go through these pendulums, and, and you, another big shift happens, another playbook evolves. So this is now the beginning of that new playbook where just growth top line or just profitability is not enough because everyone has seen that when you drive growth or you try to build profitability without the purpose, without the mission, without the why, it is almost impossible. It's possible in the short term, but everyone's come to the realization that the consumer is very wise, very consensuous. You know, the, she's asking uh, the why before she's asking what you're selling, right? They want to know, they can see through. And most importantly, in this digital and, and you know, disrupted world, consumers have tremendous choice. So you can't take it for granted. You, you have to earn and fight uh, to earn their loyalty. And I think that's what's really pushed organizations and, and the startups to realize that it's not a choice. You, know, you, you have to stand up for your beliefs. You need to have values. At the same time, you need to have a growing business. You know, so you can't just have purpose without business. And you can't have business without uh, a purpose that you believe in. Can you think back to the moment when you realized that that purpose actually has a huge amount of weight and not just growth? Don't know if, was, if there was any one moment. I think it's a function of just you growing as a human. What I can say is I wasn't thinking like that all through my career. That I can tell you that I grew up as an engineer and the world is black and white. When you are an engineer, look, it works or it doesn't work. Right? You, you don't believe in serendipity. You don't think there's anything great. You, know, you either like something or you don't like something. As you grow and, and you get some more wisdom, and I, I, I think I was eight, 10 years behind everything. So I think I matured late, I got wisdom late, and I, I, I still don't have that. But when I talk to a lot of the young entrepreneurs, they're phenomenal. You know, they talk about stuff that I'm barely even learning right now. But from my standpoint, that evolution was very gradual process as I, you know, as I think I became a father, as I became a husband, as I met a lot of people, as I got mentored by tremendous leaders, as I hired people who taught me, you know, and more importantly, as I kept failing, you know, I, I, I was not only tactical failures that you build, you know, you go through in your product, but just failures as a leader where you're thinking evolves, you know, it shakes you up and it makes you introspect and you, you really start to think, what are your values? And the one shift I can perhaps point down to which I've shared before and I've written about it is I typically, I, I usually look at my 20 plus years of career in two phases. Um, there was a phase one where I was like a hammer. You know, I was, I was, you know, one of the top performers in the company, but I was like a hammer. Everything was a nail and 
I was trained to do things in a certain way and I did them very well. And um, the Indian inside me is just work hard. You work, you know, 16, 18, 20 hours. Sometimes you see sunrise. So it was that, but I had no point of view. I had no perspective. And, and it's a function. No perspective is a symptom of having maybe no direction in life, you know, no, no belief, no values. I wasn't a bad person. I just didn't acknowledge what I stood up for. So I'm not saying that I was, I was totally, you know, this random kid on the streets. Uh, but the transition for me happened when I left where I had been groomed and I got my first job outside of that in somewhere in 2012. I think I challenged myself to finally say, I have to change something in my life, that I have to have a belief system, that I need to have a point of view. And that wasn't restricted to then just a professional point of view, that, that spread across. And just around that time, I had been practicing Buddhism, which is a life philosophy for me. And, and all those things started to come together. And that, I think that was a little bit of a hockey stick for me personally, less about the roles I played, more about as an individual, what drove my transformation, which then reflects into how I work uh, every single day. Is there a specific way that you solidify that point of view? Because you, you write fairly often, I, and I, I try to as well, and I find that's a really clarifying way to figure out what I care about. And when you put it on paper, you read it out loud, you're like, is that me? Is that me? And then you can kind of yeah. think, of, think through it. Do you have any other ways that you do it? Well, I, I kind of followed. One thing I did decide, this was 2011, when I was um, just starting to think about what I wanted in life. Uh, and then I finally left Sapien in 2012 to join Kimberly Clark, uh, which were, again, Sapien is where my foundation was laid. And still till date, my values are based out of what I learned there. But the trans transition was very similar. I, I decided one day that I was going to challenge myself to do everything that scared me. Mm -hmm. And writing, speaking, reading were all things that I didn't enjoy. You know, as a kid, I grew up playing sports and everything else seemed boring to me. But I challenged myself to say I was going to do that. So the pivotal point was the first ever blog I ever wrote. And it wasn't as much about the blog. It's not a big thing. For me, it was because it took me eight or nine days to think about what's the topic that I can write about? You know, is there anything that I know that somebody else would not? Because everything seems so obvious. And it took me to a path where I started to question what have I done in these last you know, 13 odd years of my career where... I, how do I not know anything that could be valuable to somebody else? And I started, that pushed me to read because I realized that I had to learn more to build a perspective. So in those times, I kid you not, I was reading and I was getting confused. Then I would read again and I would try to make it mine. You know, I said, okay, what does that mean to me? And then I wrote my first blog. I clearly remember uh, took two, two and a half days to write it. It was on um, performance tuning of uh, a JVM, which is an application server. So JVM is the Java virtual machine because I felt that somewhere in my career, that was one thing that I did so well. I went so deep that I could stand somewhere and talk. But that was one topic. And it made me, but that process made me think that I had to do a lot more to learn, to break the shackles and challenge myself. And then that led to, First time I ever spoke at a, at a big conference, at a big event, that led to me saying, okay, I'm going to start writing and I'm going to start reading, which meant I wanted to start learning and, and realize that, uh, you know, you really don't know much and there's a lot of fun stuff out there to learn.
I think the whole way you summarize that was to do things that scare you is uh, it can always happen. Like that's a great way to level up continuously. How does that apply right now in the COVID world and with all the unrest that's going on? Like everything is kind of scary right now. And I'm personally trying to trying to figure out what yeah. what I should be working on and how I should be using this time to listen and, and reflect and let it shape me, but then all at the same time taking action so that yep. I'm not kind of staying still. Is that something you're thinking about? Yes. I think a lot of that is what I have learned from my Buddhist practice. So I practice Nichiren Buddhism and I have a mentor who's my mentor in life. His name is Daisaku Keda. He lives in Japan and uh, there are a lot of brilliant writings and books that he's written. And my life now um, at the core of it is based on all of that. And what I've learned from that, and, and I'm saying this not because this is a philosophical or a philosophy podcast, but I truly mean that this when I'm sharing anything, when I'm working every single day, when you're seeing the ups and downs, when you're trying to you know, hit some numbers and those numbers aren't meeting and, or, or you make a mistake and, and you kind of stand in front of the mirror. At that point, every, in each one of those moments, how I express myself or what I do is a function of what I think I'm learning from that philosophy, which tells me that my environment is a reflection of my inner self. It believes in the oneness of you and the environment, which means situations, which means people, which means friends, colleagues, family, relationships, everything. And that, and then it further states that only you are responsible for what's happening around you. But it also says only you have the potential, the wisdom, the courage, the compassion to transform that. But that transformation doesn't happen outside. That transformation happens within. So to answer your question, how do I see my role in what's happening right now or something else that's going to happen is, is constantly asking and challenging myself, what am I going to do within my ecosystem, within the people that I face? Do I bring that respect? Do I bring the dignity of life? And am I going to vocalize my beliefs and my values? Not just on public fronts. It doesn't only have to be on the streets. It could be one-to-one because it believes, or I believe, that that transformation, that world peace, ultimately happens between this dialogue that you and I are having. You know, that it's not impossible, but that's where it begins. So that's my philosophy, and that's the same, very same thing I try to bring to work every day. That's the very same thing I challenge. Many times I fail. Maybe I fail more times. But my practice helps me understand by evening that I made a mistake. The next day I'm going to try more. But one thing it pushes me and challenges me and encourages me to do is not put the blame on somebody else. That I have to take full responsibility um, for what's happening in my life. Yeah, that's really good. That's that's kind of full circle where you need to, it's, it is about you as much as it's about other people. You need to be comfortable with yourself because you have to spend every day, all day, every day with yourself. Yes. Yes, for sure. I, okay. I've got a couple questions here that I got from a buddy of yours. Do you want me to tell you their name (laughs) first or should I ask you the questions and then I'll let you know who it is? Well, tell me the name. I'm I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) It's from Matt Kerbel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I asked him what 
are a couple of th- like ideas the two of you discussed that that you think more people should be paying attention to and thinking about. And uh, you gave me a couple doozies, so we'll we'll start and warm up to it because it kind of comes to the the apex, which is what's next. But we'll start off with some with some lower ones. So he's mentioning that you've got a, you've got a very strong point of view, and we've just, we've just discussed this. Like to have that point of view is really beneficial both personally and professionally. And allows you to kind of like move with purpose and not always be kind of distracted by the newest, newest, greatest thing. And it also allows you to kind of picture what the future could be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way the future is going to be. So we can speculate about what post-COVID is going to look like, but we just have no idea until it actually happens. As a leader in a company, how do you think our companies are going to respond to from now on the talent that they're looking for, the kind of cultures they're looking to build? What, what do you think about that? That's a great question. And, and you said this is the one that came from Matt. Okay. I think I'm connecting with him later this week. So I'm going to throw it back at him. Or maybe I could <laughs> post that on LinkedIn or something so I can throw the curveball back. Yeah. But I, first of all, I, one thing that we're all certain about is uh, that there are going to be some new normals. We're also certain about that we are humans and we'll forget the past very quickly. And uh, we are going to go back to some not such good habits that we've had. We are also certain about that not every organization, every company is going to do things the same way. And not everyone is going to be successful because this is, this is not a small happening. This has been a, a wake-up call. This has been a shake-up where, which has challenged and questioned the methods and means and the beliefs of you know, what we've had in the last so many years, not just in the last eight to 10 years. This has made everybody question, let's say very specifically around marketing, made us question, it has taken us all the way back to the purpose again, because it did not give you any choice. Well, there was no, there was no need to buy media. You know, people weren't stepping out. So what would you do? You had to go back to asking, well, wait, hold on. You know, I can't buy media, which means I have to do something else, which is how marketing was always meant to be. But that made everybody go back and say, oh, maybe I can, I can finally engage with the consumer. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can make them feel not anxious. Maybe I, I shouldn't have to make them feel the fear of missing out and I can really be empathetic. Maybe I can listen for a change. So we all were forced to do that. Now, what I cannot tell you, this is the part of the future that nobody can predict, is, is that going to stay as a new normal where we are going to continue to be empathetic? I think some of the organizations are, but those are the ones that were kind of always there. Right? There are going to be a, an archetype of organizations that are perhaps right now wearing that facade and that facade will come off, which is why I also believe that this whole world of you know, distributed working and virtual working and remote working or working from home, th- there are three types of organizations, I feel, that are going to face it. One are organizations that have values and culture, a culture of trust, but they don't have the tools and the infrastructure to operate in this digital world they will succeed because they have a mechanical problem. And I'm sure by now they've solved that and now they are thriving. Then there are organizations that were already there. You know, they, it didn't matter. They had, a, they had a strong culture, strong infrastructure, strong tech. It didn't matter. This, this wasn't a blip. You know, the only blip was the market shifts. But the third category are organizations that have the infrastructure, they have the technology and the equipment. Uh, they don't have the culture. They don't have an environment which is a safe environment. They don't have trust. They will not succeed in this world. And those are the ones that will always also will struggle 
to, they, they will usually differentiate how you treat your external customer with your internal employees. But organizations that have strong values and strong ethos and strong belief system, they don't isolate your employees from your customers. They're equally obsessed with employees as you're obsessed with customers because they know that the culture that you want to build outside is a reflection of your culture inside. So while I cannot tell you mm-hmm. how many of the organizations fall in what archetypes, I can safely tell you that some of them, the ones that do have that foundation will succeed. And this is just a blip. They're perhaps already you know, on the up curve. And the ones that don't have that foundation, they are the ones that are eventually going to struggle in this new normal. Just on a personal note, like in your next opportunity that you're going to go for, are you looking to do uh, a remote company? It's a personal choice. I don't, I don't know. I would love to be in a place that gives you the option, that gives you the choice, that puts the value you know, in creating an environment where, where you have the flexibility and it's trust. Having said that, I also don't think it's a binary world. Look, if you're, if you're early stage, if you're bootstrapping, Personally, I think that being in one place and, and really brainstorming, doesn't matter how f- fantastic the tools are, it's a little bit harder. If you're a humming machinery you know, that has gained scale, it's a lot easier because the rhythm exists. You know, the, the rinse and repeat model exists. But if you're early on, you know, there is more that you don't know than what you know. I think no matter how great technology is and, and Zoom and, and X, Y, and Z, then nothing can replace human, you know, proximity, you know, uh, body language and, and being in front of a whiteboard to, to do stuff, um, getting upset. I mean, I don't know how people get upset right now, but that's important too, right? You got to have uh, strong arguments and, and discussions. So I do miss that. And personally, I would like to be back in that environment, and, but also at the same time, have flexibility for someone, you know, who has a different situation. That's my personal preference. No, I'm in the same boat. I think that hybrid model, there's, there's going to be some good legs on that for a lot of companies if they can, if they can have that trust, like you mentioned. That, but that's, that's just going to have to happen anyways, whether you're in person or not. It's, you're, you're probably going to yes. lose talent if you don't have that trust regardless. Yes. From a product perspective, because you in the last couple companies have been the marketing up specific product, what kind of commonalities are you seeing in what makes a successful product right now? And, that, and that's a pretty broad question. So maybe I'll kind of refine a little bit. Subscription models specifically are kind of like an area of expertise that you've, that you've developed. Are you excited about any type of new pricing model that comes from subscriptions uh, as people kind of reassess where they spend their money and, and, their, and their, what they need on a day-to-day? I think it's tough to say if there's, there's any kind of product that's exciting for me or that is going to be successful. There is no question that there are some areas which are getting a bit more, that are getting some fatigue for very obvious reasons, that are getting a little bit more saturated. You know, advertising is one. Subscription economy is another. But that's not to say that any new subscription idea is necessarily going to fail. It's going to be, there are a lot of places where disruption hasn't happened with the subscription model, healthcare being one of them. There are a lot of brilliant ideas that are really being cooked up right now to, to totally challenge that. Insurance is another, is another place. I feel there are underpenetrated categories that are still struggling where subscription could play a role. Uh, but I don't think subscription as a blanket is a success or a failure. I think it's in context of the behavior you're trying to change. 
if there's another content subscription company, that's a challenge because that's hard. That, that, that category is just reasonably saturated and you have to be so brilliant to penetrate and get market share. Having said that, I think ultimately it's the age-old formula for product market fit. You have to come up with a great product in a great market. But the third leg of that is the timing has got to be right too. So it's not just a great product in a great market. It's, it's the timing. Is, is it a great product in a great market? At what time? You know, are, is the market ready for that? And, and I think that. And everything else beyond that, to be honest, doesn't matter if you've reached product market fit. The world's changing so fast. You, have to, you, you just have to be constantly running. And one thing that I took away working at Spotify, which, which proved, which is kind of a scaled startup even at, at this stage, is that the only moat that any company has today is your ability to move faster than the competition. So the only formula for any product to work is based on is determined based on their rate of iteration, you know, not their rate of development, but how fast are you iterating and getting the getting the learning, you know, getting it out there, get the learning, adjust it, take it back out there, and and that's all. Whether that is pricing, whether that is business model or your experience, mm. that's interesting because I've heard other people say that brand is like the best part, the best moat that you can have. But I guess that kind of plays in. Like you, you can't have those ideas to iterate if you don't have a good connection with your, with your customers. Well, my challenge with, with that, though, is that brand is not an input. You, you don't, I mean, you can build a product, but you don't build a brand like a campaign. Everything has to work for years for you to build the trust, which ultimately builds a brand. Brand is an outcome. You know, your, your culture contributes to the brand, your product contributes, your customer service contributes to the brand, the actual experience contributes to the brand. Everything, how you reflect yourself on every single channel is your brand. Your acquisition campaign is your brand. You know, your employees are your brand. So it's, of course, your brand is your mode, but how do you build that brand? It takes every single thing over the years to ultimately build a brand that becomes a more that can be trusted. That is, that commands a position where your consumers are more forgiving. But that's not an input. That's not a campaign. That's not a, a, an above the line media spend. That's a journey. But that's a lot of hard work. <laughs> and and in today's world, in order for you to do that, you have to move fast because yes, you can have a great looking, you know, identity. You can have a brilliant look and feel. But if you don't have enough market, if you're not changing enough people's lives, then you haven't built that moat. And even then, it's not static. But there's always somebody else who's going to come in and disrupt you. You know, Blockbuster was, had the highest market share, but only until a Netflix came. You know, Nokia mm -hmm. was ruling the world, you know, but only until something else came. So, oh, yeah, I like that. And, th and then... It just makes it, again, the, the system's thinking. It's brand. What is brand? Rather than just making it a lofty idea, it has direct input so you can influence. So you have to keep track on all of them and move that towards the outcome you're looking for. Very cool. I got a, one or two more for you, Mayor, and then I'll let you go. But looking back at your time, both at Freshly and then at Spotify, made a lot of and mistakes, as you were saying, learned a lot, had a lot of great successes. What are you most looking forward to learning in this next chapter? I want to, 
I want to have wherever I go and whatever I do, I, I want to challenge myself to have a sustainable impact and, you know, and, and being able to connect the dots and prove to my own self, not to anybody, that the impact to the business, the impact to people's lives, the impact to the world, the impact to the teams that are working on, on all of that, the impact on building that so-called brand that we just spoke about, that all those pieces are, are inseparable. And I, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what, I, what my core belief is, that, it's, that purpose and growth are not two separate things. You know, purpose and profit, profitability are not two separate paths. That creative storytelling and data science are not polar opposites. You know, they, they amplify each other. And I, where, whatever I choose to do, I, I want to be a proponent uh, of that. I want to be a servant of that belief. And I want to challenge myself to prove that to, in two types of worlds. There are people out there who will only believe in it with data. So I want to be able to prove that with data, which I feel that my background helps me to kind of take some of the more less addressable beliefs in, and figure out proxy ways. You also don't want data to obstruct creativity and, and the irrationality that is very important. But to, to make one part of the world believe, you've got to figure out how, but how is it working? How do you know that this would not have happened? So you've got to, you just can't say, no, 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 believe me. No, I don't believe you. <laughs> but tell me, give me something that makes me believe. So you have to be able to translate that. And at the same time, there's another part of the world that is, you know, that has a very different way of thinking. You know, they, they, are, they are truly serendipitous. And you have to be able to show to them how some of these things have no value. How is, so the challenge and the opportunity for everybody, uh, marketing or otherwise, is how do you show both sides of that and prove, ultimately prove impact? And, and a lot of those things are going to be difficult to measure, but that's when you have to look to the polar opposite and say, okay, how, do, how does they measure and kind of take the best pieces and move forward and keep iterating yourself, not just your company. And yes, having said that, everything in the world is measurable. Just the measure is different. Mm -hmm. right? it's, I can measure how my daughters sleep. I can measure how they study and the quality of their study. You, know, you can measure uh, the, my efficiency of how I clean my house these days. Everything is measurable. The challenge happens when you take the same measure and apply to everything you do. That's the problem. You're trying to measure the value of your brand with the way you measure the value of your media. You know, you're trying to measure the value of medicine with the way you value the measure, the, you know, measure the value of your car. You know, these are apples and oranges. But trust me, that's what happens sometimes. You take the same measure and you start to look at and measure creativity the same way you measure media. You're going to cannibalize one or the other. Tricky stuff. We gotta. <laughs> that's. I'm gonna need oh, to chew on really that for a little bit. Right here. No, it's <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a conversation that that teams have internally when they're fighting over what metric to use to measure the outcome. It's a thing that you measure in your own head as you're deciding what you want to spend your days doing. Like it's 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 a constant thing that you need to uh, need to figure out. And so any type of insight towards what models or thought processes helps immensely. Very cool. Well, I'm uh, I'm gonna let you go, Mayor. This has been uh, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I hope that Matt didn't give you too hard a time on those one on that one. <laughs>
No, it was it was great. I think he and I and our our buddy Eric, we we are we I won't spill spill the beans here, but we are uh, insecting incepting something cool. They're great people, great leaders, and uh, great friends. Thanks for having me over, and it was a lot of fun. Hold up before you take off. I've just got something quick to tell you about. If you made it this far in the episode, I'm assuming you found the conversation to be interesting. Thank you so much for listening, but I want to give you more. You see, I send an email every week called Top of Mind Weekly, and this is where I share a lot more in-depth stuff of what's top of mind to me. A lot of this stuff I don't share anywhere else, and so if you want to get access to it, you need to be on that email list. The way to do that is to open up your email application if you're on your phone or if you're on your desktop, just open a new window, go to your mail app, and compose a blank message to topofmind at bcast.email. That's a blank email, no subject line, nothing, to topofmind at b, as in bunny, cast.email. Once you're on that list, you'll have access to all that great content and you'll have access to me. If you reply to any of those emails, that is my priority in responding to questions. So blank message to topofmind at bcast.email. See you there. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.